Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and the book is named Ardor, and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it, and I think you'll love it. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week we have Dimitris Zigalatas, and I'm not pronouncing his name correctly because it starts with an X, and he very politely informed me that it was okay to pronounce it that way, so I will let him say it himself, and maybe we'll get into some of the cross-cultural aspects of Greece and America. But in the meantime, what you need to know about him before we start the interview is that he is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist at the University of Connecticut, where he directs the Experimental Anthropology Lab. He's been studying rituals for over two decades through a combination of ethnographic fieldwork and scientific experiments. His research has been published in over 100 scientific articles and books, and his latest book is called Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Talk about a perfect guest for Coffin Talk. Welcome, Demetrius. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so real quick, as advertised, can you just actually say your last name the way you would say it? <laughs> the way I would say it is Xigalatas. And I can assure you this is uh, strange even in Greece. So anybody with that last name is related to me. Okay, cool. Uh, when I was a child, I was obsessed with the letter X, and I would try to like invent names with it. And so I love just seeing it, and I like the XY combo. I don't know. I'm a visual language person, but... um. Uh, let's see. Normally we ask people how old they are, uh, where they grew up and what generation they're a member of, if any. So let's start with that. All right. I'm 45 years old. I'm not entirely sure what generation that makes me part of because I grew up in Greece. So I never use this uh, nomenclature. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) And, um, uh, which part of Greece did you grow up in? I grew up in Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city. Okay. Not, not the great many people know about it, but it's a, it's a city of about 1 million people up north. Got it's it. one of the biggest harbors in Greece as well. Do you guys have like an American culture? Like do cities have like fun sports rivalries and are you guys like rivals with Athens or anything like that? Oh, you have no idea. There's <laughs> nothing equivalent to that in the United States. And this is something actually I've done research on in my, in my lab. We also look at sports fanship. Uh, the American complex is, is a bit... It's a bit of an outlier in many parts of the world, this included, those sports rivalries um, are, are taken very, very seriously. Let me give you an example. My home team, Pauk Thessaloniki, so um, their colors are black and white. Their biggest rival, I would, I would use the word enemy, <laughs> is Olympiakos, uh, uh, a team from Piraeus near Athens. They, they're wearing um, red. Now, you will see that fans of one team have brotherhoods, or rather sisterhoods, because the the word is uh, feminine in Greek, the word team. They have these affiliations with teams in other countries. And there have been incidents where fans of one team traveled to another country to engage in street fights with their friends' enemies. And, And in fact, what these... Uh, well, these associated teams have in common is simply that they wear the same color shirt and that they, they hate the people who wear the other kind of, kind of shirt, the other color. That is very intense. It only reminds me of a little bit of our gangs, in, uh, especially Los Angeles. But uh... 
Absolutely, because when I say when I talk about hatred, I mean real hatred. So there have been murders. Wow. Uh, last year, Greece was rocked by by a case of a 19-year-old being murdered in cold, cold blood mm-hmm. by wow. a group of people who just stopped him in the street, asked him what his favorite team was, gave the wrong answer, and he was killed on the spot. Oh my gosh. Um, so what about like unification, like with regards to when Greece famously won the Euro Cup in 2004? Like, what happens in that situation? Oh, well, you can you can imagine that that was a, a state of collective euphoria. <laughs> I've lived this two times. I lived in the 1987 when okay. we won the European Basketball uh, oh, Championship, yeah. and at that time we, we've always been one of the, the best basketball teams in Europe. Yeah, definitely. But in in but in 2004 when we won the the football uh, the European Championship, that was nobody expected that. <laughs> we had never won a single game in the in the final round, and and then we won the the championship. So what I remember from that was that I, I was, um, I happened to be in Spain at the time. My wife is Spanish. Uh, at the time she was working for a Spanish newspaper. So we were living there. And so I watched the game alone. And right <laughs> after the end of the final, I, I started calling my friends and my family, but the, the phone network was down because, <laughs> because everybody was calling each other. This is so fun. I uh, I love sports. I mean, I could talk about sports for the next forty five minutes with you. And I'm, oh, me too. Me I'm too. so you interested. Um, and actually, I, I do have a follow up question to that, which is, um, well, I mean, it's kind of related, but like, when did you come to America and why? Like, so I had a short uh, spell in the United States, and so that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, I was doing a postdoc uh, at the time. I was in New Jersey. Uh, later, I well, I've lived in many places. I've lived in seven countries, including Greece. Wow. And I moved a lot because of my studies and, and me becoming an anthropologist. So I've lived in places where I conducted fieldwork, and I've lived in places where I've been a student and later faculty. Then in 2014, I got a job at the University of Connecticut, and that's how I ended up in the United States. This is actually the longest spell I've ever had in a single country since I, my uh, in my adult life. Wow, that's so fascinating. Do you have uh, time, just real quick, can you rattle off the seven countries you've lived in? Well, I grew up in Greece. I left Greece uh, for, for the first time ever. My first time on a plane was uh, when I was in college and I went to Denmark as an exchange student. I later went back to Denmark to do um, graduate studies. Later, I went to Northern Ireland where I did my PhD at Queen's University, Belfast. I married a Spanish woman, so I've lived in Spain, and I also conducted fieldwork in Spain. I spent three years in the Czech Republic, where I was hired to set up a new research center. Uh, and I've lived uh, cumulatively about two years in the island of Mauritius, in the Indian Ocean, where I do my fieldwork. And for the last nine years, I've been living in the, in the U.S., and I believe that makes it seven. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I was a ESL teacher, English as a Second Language, in San Francisco, and I taught mostly people like you, people achieving postdoctorates and things like that to help them refine their English. So I have uh, so much experience with cross-cultural communications and that, you know, I have a master's in some of that. And the reason I bring this up is that I think we have a lot of, like in common as far as I spent so many years only working with international students and people who travel like you. And, and I developed such good rapport and such a fondness for just like the interchange of cultures. So I'm always extra fascinated by a person who themselves is going to so many different cultures because you're like 
just getting this like web of, you know, they talk about the iceberg theory. You can only see like the top of the iceberg of a culture. Um, so I am curious in all of those travels, did you like get into the, what they call the lower levels of the iceberg in all of those experiences or were some of them like more superficial than others? Some more than others. Uh, of course, all of these countries I've lived in for, for at least one or two years each. So it gives you some insight. But one, one thing you realize is when you've lived this nomadic lifestyle is that um, you are not proficient in the pop culture of any one country. <laughs> and this still happens to be in the United States. I've been here for nine years and my students often mess with me because they, <laughs> they mention this or that famous actor or famous uh-huh. movie that I'm still not aware of. That's that's so funny. Yeah, and I'm I'm 41, so we're like the same age. So it's funny because I even I'm like aging out, and I can't understand some of the references. And it's weird and awkward when you grow up in a country to have that happen, let alone when you're traveling. Um, one more like cultural question, just because it's something I remember from Greece, and my parents were actually talking about it last night. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, by all means. But is it still the case that um, nodding in Greece is actually no, whereas in our country, nodding means yes? No, this would be Bulgaria. Oh, okay. And, but 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 the interesting thing is that uh, our word for uh, yes is ne. That's what I'm thinking of. And in, okay. and in Bulgaria, the the word for the word ne means no, <laughs> and they they nod for saying no, which is very confusing for a Greek traveling to Bulgaria. Got it. Okay, so I was confused, and that's interesting. And uh, what are like. I don't want to ask like corny questions like what's the biggest difference between Greece and America, but I am curious because our most of our audience is American. What's a thing about America that you notice about us that's like positive that we don't notice about ourselves? I'll start with that. Well, for me, I'm, I I came to the United States to um, to work as an academic, and I think this is perhaps the best and at the same time the worst aspect of uh, of life in the United States, or at least one of the best and one of the worst. The best thing that American universities are they really are the best in the world in terms of infrastructure and the human capital that they have. At the same time, that they are by by miles the more the most expensive, the most expensive educational system in the world. So pros and cons. Yeah. And what about allegations that the academic institution is starting to become like political by nature? And I don't mean taking sides like to talk about that so much as instead of being an honest institution of learning they're starting to become corrupted by like the needs for financing which ties into what you just mentioned have you seen any of that so so this too is part of, a, of another big problem that i see in the united states that uh, strikes me as really unusual compared to everything else where i've lived that everything in the united states just has to be politicized and has to be <laughs> uh, we're living in such polarized times so I, when i when i watch the news i still cannot believe how partisan all yeah. media are in the United States, and that extends to all of our, our other institutions. Well, you are on the least partisan podcast of all time, and I assure you that what you just spoke about from your lips to, quote-unquote, God's ears is the thing I care the most about, which is just trying to help people see how insane it is, because unlike a bad marriage where you can actually get a divorce and never see the other person again, this country can't divorce itself and live with itself. And I Absolutely. Yeah, yes. it's crazy. And it's funny, too, because, you know, you mentioned, like, the distinct sports rivalries in Greece, and of course you have violence there, and of course you guys have your own disagreements, and I'm sure, like, the financing and economic collapses were difficult, but it's just interesting to, like, see Americans not see how self-destructive we are right now, especially right now. I'm just going to say that over and over again right now because I don't, I didn't live before this, but. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. 
Um, yeah, so let's get into anthropology, which is, of course, uh, by my definition that I learned, the study of, quote-unquote, man, which would not be nationalism in politics. But uh, as far as anthropology goes, like, when and why did you become interested in it? So that's – I like the way you phrase this because some some people – so anthropology is the, is the study of human diversity and at the same time it's the study of what makes us all the same, all members of the same species, which is exactly my focus on, on ritual. Now, how did I come uh, to the decision to study ritual? I guess this, this goes all the way back to my childhood. Growing up in, in Greece, I was always fascinated by other cultures. And at the time, um, there was no internet. So I was growing up in the 80s. Um, there was no cable television in Greece. We just had a, a couple of uh, TV stations. So my window to the world was, or at least one of my primary windows to the world, was National Geographic. So once a month, I would go with my mother to, to the city center, and I would buy the issue of National Geographic. It was only in English at the time, which I liked because it allowed me to practice my English. And I would read about all of these fascinating rituals, and I would see the colorful pictures. And in my mind, that was something I was very far away. That was not part of my life at all. But then at some point, I realized that these same types of behavior, these same types of rituals, not just the, the, the mundane ones that I would see around me, like the, the church going and the, the, the morning prayer and so on and so forth, but even some of the more flamboyant and extraordinary ones, things like firewalking and things like bloody pilgrimages, they were happening in my own culture. So it was then I started realizing that uh, ritual seems to be human universal. And that, so the title of my book, or the subtitle rather, exactly conveys that. Things that appear to be pointless, that appear to be senseless, they can be deeply meaningful for human beings. And this is so widespread in the world. There's no society we've ever known that didn't have rituals. So it's so widespread that it begs the question, uh, why? What is it that these practices offer to so many individuals? Wow. And, and that's how I... That, that was my motivation for becoming an anthropologist. That's that's so interesting, and I, I really love how it, your passion for it is. Is it's, it's you can hear it in your voice, and it's definitely translating to me. And I love that because I think ultimately that's what all people need to be doing is pursuing what they're passionate about. Um, so speaking of societies, I think uh, I index books uh, for one of my jobs, and so I often come across the differences between being a culture and a society. Uh, do you see any difference? And if so, what would that be? Well, one example would be American society right now, which is divided into several subcultures, or at least two main cultures. So when we talk about politics, for example, we can see uh, greater divisions. Now, these terms can be can be used in more specific um, ways. In, in my branch of anthropology, for example, cognitive anthropology, people have devised ways of measuring cultural agreement. But of course, um, the other thing to mention here is that we are members of multiple cultures. Things are not as clear-cut as we might like to, to think sometimes. So you might be a, a member of a particular political culture and a particular sports fan culture and a particular generation within that society that has its own culture or be the descendant of uh, immigrants that have another subculture within that larger context and so on and so forth. Cool. So kind of along those lines... Um... And and I'm asking with naivety, so if my question is unanswerable, please just say so. But what is the oldest society that is recognized by modern anthropologists uh, versus 
uh, when did like humans start according to anthropologists, modern anthropologists? Hey everybody, I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeYop.com, that's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and sign up today. So so this is a very complex question to, to answer. Um, some might argue that the first societies come about once we have permanent settlement and, and things like farming. Perhaps not everybody would give the same answer, but uh, I might pinpoint to, to that. And this is where we begin to see the role of ritual already at the beginning of the, the very first human societies, the, the very first human civilizations, the importance of ritual. There's one particular site that I mentioned in my book, and this site is called Gobekli Tepe. It's found in present-day Turkey. It's near the Syrian border. And this site might um, change everything we thought we knew about human prehistory. What we have there is it's a massive site. It's uh, something like the, the size of nine football stadiums, if I'm not mistaken. And across that area, you have multiple, at least 20 uh, mega structures. Each one of them uh, is what we would call a temple. And each one of them is constructed, was constructed by these gigantic monoliths that can weigh about 20 tons each. They had to be carved by uh, and carried from a nearby quarry. They would, have had, they would have taken hundreds or thousands of individuals working for years to build those. And the date of that site is over 12,000 years old. And what is astonishing about this, so, so think about this. This is older, twice as old as Stonehenge. This is three times as old as the, uh, the Egyptian pyramids. But the most astonishing part of, about this story is that there is no known um, city at that point. There is no permanent uh, settlement. There is no farming. There is no writing. There is no. We haven't invented the wheel, uh, pottery, and any of the hallmarks of civilization. Instead, what we see is that first people construct this uh, mega monument. And then a few centuries later, they begin to develop, uh, to establish permanent settlements, which suggests that this was used by hunter-gatherers. Sometimes they would travel thousands of miles uh, as pilgrims to go and visit that site. And they would have had the the kinds of high arousal ceremonies that uh, that people might uh, might have in a a stadium today, perhaps. And the archaeologist who uncovered this site, Klaus Schmidt, uh, a German archaeologist, uh, he coined the famous phrase, first came the temple, then the city. Huh. And if he's right, if he's right, that means that everything we thought we knew, that the impetus for the establishment of uh, the first cities was the search of uh, food, which actually doesn't make much sense because hunter-gatherers have had a more, uh, much more balanced diet and a healthier lifestyle compared to the back-breaking labor that early farmers had to put in. Um, so we see the effects on their health were, were devastating. They they lost about four inches in, in height. They, um, their short uh, their their lifespan was shortened. The infant mortality increased. They were exposed to all sorts of pathogens and, of course, raids. And, and there was inequality. Why would they go uh, into all of this trouble? They didn't get any direct benefits. So Smith suggests that uh, these the need that they uh, the urge that led them to establish the first cities were not material needs. They were they were spiritual needs. Uh, 
it was because they wanted to get together to practice those rituals. And the building of those sites and the maintenance of those sites required uh, permanent settlement. Wow, you're so articulate and you answer your questions so well. When you talk about the lifespan of humans and then like the inches and stuff like that, I can kind of imagine how you're like using carbon dating and bones and stuff for evidence of that. But I am curious, like, how do we actually know the lifespans of people? Is it just from records? Yeah, it's from archaeological findings. So the, the skeletal findings, for example, they can be dated and we can get approximations for their age. So we see that uh, way more children are, are dying. Okay. Uh, younger adults are, are dying. Uh, we have evidence from their teeth, for example. They have uh, way more um, uh, caries and, and all kinds of problems with their teeth. Their bones, they, uh, they're losing bone structure. They, they have tuberculosis. So they have all sorts of other diseases. Um, findings from their water supplies, so their wells, they're, they're finding that they're contaminated with fecal matter. And those are coming both because both humans and their animals are, are living in such close proximity that um, that the, there's a great increase in communicable diseases. And so on and so forth, there's a wealth of evidence that suggests that uh, this particular move from a nomadic lifestyle to the earliest uh, farming societies had devastating effects. And, and in fact, those effects, we can, we can see them going on for, for thousands of years. In fact, the average height that we lost through the, that transition, we didn't recover it until about 100 years ago. Wow. The global population was shorter for thousands of years after that transition. Okay, this next question is very much related to your area of expertise, which is, um, what can you tell me about ritual sacrifice? So, like, I know we've read about, like, the Azteca and Mayan cultures and stuff like that. I'm just curious, like, how early does that happen? And can do you have any theories or explanations for it? It's a, it's a very common... Um, thing to hear when you ask people why they engage in, in their uh, rituals, people will talk about tradition and they will talk about um, uh, they will defer to religion and, and custom and so on but every so often you hear people say that they have a certain expectation that, um, that there's, a, there's this relationship of exchange and this comes very natural to human beings. Although theologians might tell you that you should worship in a particular way, that you just worship for its own sake and you don't expect anything back but people who practice rituals in their everyday lives they often have this uh, idea that you need to give something in order to get something that's where this idea of sacrifice comes from sometimes we might call it sacrifice so hindus for example they used to sacrifice animals they still do in some parts of the world um, today those sacrifices have been for the most part substituted by uh, uh, fruit offerings but even to this day, they might refer to them as a sacrifice. So you can, if you if you extend this to its extreme, then you might see how things like human sacrifices might also wow. uh, come about. There's this uh, idea that comes very intuitive to to our brain that uh, uh, you get what you pay for, right? So when you when you go into extreme lengths, so that could be self-sacrifice when you engage in a very painful ritual, for example. Or when you sacrifice something that has a lot of material value, and of course, what could be possibly more valuable than human life, uh, that the, uh, the rewards will be of, uh, of equal magnitude. That makes so much sense. Uh, this is such a leap in my line of questioning, but I am curious, am I making a, uh, is my metaphor fair to the spirit of anthropology that one could even look at like 
I'll, I'll be specific to America. Our obsession with driving our own cars and our fear of autonomous vehicles is almost like a ritualistic thing. Like the ritual of driving is so ingrained in the American psyche that to give up that for autonomous vehicles would just be like too big of a change in ritual. Am I, am I, is my metaphor fair at all to you? Well, it is fair in the sense that uh, quite a lot of what we do as a species is driven by this cultural inertia that you're talking about. So we, we prefer what we know. There's, a, there's this um, anecdote that Ford, when they asked him, um, when he invented the, the car, uh, when they asked him about it, he said that I just went ahead and did it. I, I didn't conduct a survey to see what people wanted because if I had asked them what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. Wow. That is so powerful. That, okay. That you just nailed like a million ideas in my head down in a, in a cool way. Um, that really helps me see something that I'm trying to connect. So, all right, well, let's, let's go ahead and get into um, your personal philosophy and then we'll come back to like what you do for a living and, and your passion. So uh, we always ask every guest, what do you think happens when you die? And I like to add extra goodies to different guests for different reasons. So with you, I'm going to have you answer that first. And then I'd like you also to answer what is the most fascinating perspective of death from all of your research that you've done that you've learned about? Mm-hmm. So from my personal philosophy, I, I am a materialist. So I, 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 don't, I don't think there's an afterlife. I don't expect there to be an afterlife. When I'm dead, I think I'll just be gone. Now, what is the most uh, fascinating perspective that I've, uh, that I've drawn from the study of uh, rituals with regards to death? I think the, the key thing here is that uh, funerary rites, which are found in every human society, and in fact, beyond. We can, we can talk about other, other species perhaps having funerary oh, rites. Cool. Uh, the most important uh, takeaway is that they're not for the dead. They're really for the living. They, they, they offer tangible benefits to the living. And this is why you will see that in certain societies. So, for example, I've been to um, the famous site that, um, in Petra, in Jordan, the one from Indiana Jones on the cover of National Geographic. And I, much like most people who go there, I thought that these... Uh, palatial structures that are carved inside the, the stone. Now, they, there are thousands of those. I thought that these were the dwellings of the people who lived there, the Nabataeans. But as it turns out, the Nabataeans lived in um, tents made of uh, a goat skin. And as they're, they're dead, were inhabiting these elaborate palace-like structures. And this is, the only place, this is not the only place where I've seen this. I've been in parts of Madagascar, for example, where the local tribes people would live in uh, huts made of reed, which were very vulnerable to the cycle that regularly strike the island. But then they would have these brick and mortar buildings for their dead. And this shows how just how important it is for us, <laughs> wow. for the living, to, to, to take care of our dead. That is so cool. That's such a great anecdote. Um, so in your opinion, which I respect to the ends of the earth and back, um, let's say that we don't do a good job of recording everything we're doing. Like, um, I don't know, something erases all the digital records from this era. What do you think of future modern anthropologists digging through like the ashes of our culture would say about our culture? Like what's something that like will be evident by what you have access to with older cultures now? That's a, that's a wonderful question. And I think 
this is a question that anthropologists can use when they teach their students, for example, about uh, interpreting data. There's a, there's a famous paper in anthropology that we typically assign to our students, and it talks about the rituals of the Nasirima. And the Nasirima is Nasirima are Americans spelled backwards. Hmm. So you begin to to read that paper, and and it talks about the ritual of this this exotic tribe that, in fact, it describes American customs. But you don't realize. Perhaps you will finish the paper and and you will still not realize. Hopefully you will <laughs> that it is your own culture that it describes. And one one thing that um, that is relevant in that paper is that it talks about all of these kinds of rituals. For example, the the, the rituals of um, uh, related to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. We have all, all these porcelain structures in our bathrooms, and we have um, mirrors and all kinds of bells and whistles, and we spend so much time there. Uh, so if an archaeologist were, uh, was to find, let's say, the proverbial anthropologist uh, for from Mars, for example, came here and saw our society or, or a future archaeologist, one thing they would infer is that they, we, have, uh, we have an awful lot of rituals surrounding uh, body excretions, which oh, wow. is not the way we see it, right? Yeah. And that makes you wonder what else might we get wrong. When we look at uh, findings from the past, what is it that we might be getting backwards? We just we simply don't know. And that's why archaeologists try to, to be very, very careful when they make claims about the, the interpretation of their findings. This podcast was designed to let people have a vehicle to talk about their spirituality and or the lack thereof. We don't care. We're not trying to promote Christianity over Judaism or vice versa, nor do we hate atheists or love you know different people from different cultures. But I am curious... Um, have there ever been like distinctly atheistic cultures that you've come across? I would have to say no. Okay. There's none that we know of. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm pretty certain. <laughs> no. In fact, what you, what you see is that even when you have uh, totalitarian governments that try to suppress religion, mm -hmm. as it happened in, in, in the USSR or, or in China, all you see is that a huge backlash. And, and later, when, when things change, a resurgence of religion, or you see underground uh, forms of uh, religiosity. Uh, so this is yet another piece of evidence that, that shows that um, religious ideas come very natural to us. And, and of course, the, um, the popularity of various spiritual practices in the West. So as organized religion perhaps is retreating, we'll see that people turn more and more towards new types of rituals, new types of uh, spiritual expressions. So, yeah, the answer would be not only that I haven't seen, that I don't know any that have existed, but... My prediction is that there will not be any in the future. That's so cool. And you actually answered my follow-up question, which is, do you have any prediction? Um, but also in that same vein of thought, um, what do you think about people in America? Not like, what do you think about them? But the, this idea I keep seeing and hearing in social media, which is science is the new religion. Do you think there's any merit to that? And do you have anything to say about that? I don't think that's a fair description. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to keep definitions precise because if we start describing everything as a religion then that means nothing is a religion. yeah i mean for science to be a religion it would have to to have uh, all sorts of things they would have to have uh, supernatural agents you know deities mm -hmm. uh sure science has its heroes of course but that's not the equivalent they would have to have uh, all kinds of uh, rituals that are performed for their own sake. Of course, you could point to the rituals of academia, but I don't think it's at the same level. One one key element there is that the, the element of the supernatural with science is, is supposed to to um, uh, to not discuss. I'm not going to say it's it's meant to um, 
uh, debunk. That's not what it's meant to do. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's not asking that question to begin with. That was a fantastic answer. You blew my mind with that. That was great. Um, you should probably have a show where you help people calm down and get along um, because your answers are great and I really appreciate them. I, I don't know if you can tell, but my line of questioning is to provide our audience with like helpful philosophy, philosophical advice that can help them see how their own past might be related to other ancient cultures and all that and just kind of how conflict seems to be a part of almost any culture and any society. Um, yes. And and along the, that lines, um, what is something that you wish more people knew from anthropology? Something that's like pretty regularly accepted, or at least something that you believe strongly in? One thing I, I wish more people knew is just the, the breadth of um, methods in anthropology. So there's a saying that might seem like a platitude, but uh, it goes that anthropology is the most humanistic of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. But this is certainly something that has informed my work. In my uh, line of research, I, I try to begin by taking people's claims seriously. I don't dismiss them. I don't take them at face value either. I, I believe in the importance of careful uh, scientific examination of the evidence. But, for example, when people say that they perform their rituals because it helps them soothe uh, their fears and their anxieties, this is something worth studying. When they say that their ritual brings them together, uh, or anthropologists say that this is something worth studying. And by studying this, we, we come to not only appreciate what makes us all human, but also uh, we come to find, uh, hopefully, ways of, of soothing our anxieties, ways of uh, bringing people together rather than uh, uh, set them apart, and so on and so forth. Wow, that was great. Thank you. Um, just a couple more questions uh, specifically to you and about you, so not about larger cultures. When you say that you're um, a materialist, and, and I don't mean like someone who only cares about money, um, but and that when you die, you're just gone and you're going to perish. I'm always curious, does that affect your morality at all? Like, because a lot of people seem to be moral specifically out of a fear of a punishment after life or out of a desire for a reward. Since you believe in neither, how does that affect your morality? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, that's who we are. So I, I don't think that we... At least that's my hope, that we don't need the, the fear of punishment to, to be uh, better people. I mean, if anything, through studying anthropology and, and through, through studying both the wonderful diversity um, across human cultures, but also all of the kinds of things that make us fundamentally the same, that make us all human, that comes with a great appreciation of the, of the human condition. And that in itself is a, is a great uh, incentive. To, uh, to be a, a, just a good person. That's so cool. I'm not saying that I'm necessarily a good person, but I am saying <laughs> that I do appreciate moral sentiments and, and, and moral values. That's for others to Yeah. I will keep your caveat in, even though I don't think it was necessary. I will keep it in just because you're a humble man and I want to make sure that our audience can hear that. However, with that said, I don't think you sound or come across as someone who's having issues with that. And also even with how you talk about delicate issues that I brought up and asked you. So, so just to insist on that a little bit, because I think this is important. So I'm not saying that anthropology makes me a good person, but I am saying that you should uh, study anthropology because it, it really can help you become a better person by making you appreciate both human diversity and the kinds of things that unite us. Wow, that's so powerful. And uh, I'm out of official questions to ask you. I have a million questions I could ask you about sports and about anthropology, but they wouldn't really fit into the structure of this podcast. So I know your time is precious, but I always ask guests uh, before they part, is there anything you want to tell our audience? Um, Just anything you want to get out? So since we've 
been talking about ritual, the, the thing to note here, and, and we touched upon this uh, already, but the thing to note is that the human need for ritual, I take it to be uh, universal, and I, and I believe that it both predates religion and extends far beyond religion. So what we see, because people ask me all the time, do you think that we're losing um, traditional rituals and what are the effects of that? And what I see happening is that even as organized religion is retreating in parts of the West, at least, the human need for ritual remains the same. So what we see instead is that people turn to other ways of expressing that, of fulfilling that need, perhaps by engaging in the collective rituals that take place in a, a rave or a rock concert or a football stadium or a political rally or a college graduation and so on and so forth. And this can happen for better and for worse. Wow. That was so great. Um, Dimitri, thank you so much. This has been an incredible interview. I, I was looking forward to it. My brother is a huge fan of yours and he's uh, himself an anthropologist, but not currently in academia doing that. So um, just thank you so much. And to anyone who needs information about him, it'll be in the notes and he's very Googleable. and he is currently in Connecticut and he is a professor here. So if you're young or even older and you want to uh, study anthropology, you can look into that. Um, and I think your last answer is a great reason for people to consider that. So thank you again for coming on our show and thank you to everyone who listens. As always, my name is Mike Oppenheim and the best way to support the show is to head over to mikeyop.com M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up for free for the weekly newsletter. And I would be um, making my wife very angry if I also didn't mention that my new book is out. It's fiction. It's about psychics. It's fun and interesting and you should buy it. Um, thank you again, Demetrius, and thank you to everyone and we will see you soon. When I hear this song, man, I'm